back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. We're here with another book review episode. This is episode 48 of our Penguin Little Black Classics review set or collection. This is when we take a sort of literary, world literary collection by Penguin. It's 80 volumes of classic literature from around the globe, and we're reviewing them one week at a time here on the pod. Again, we're here with episode 48, which is on two short stories by Edith Wharton, one of them called The Reckoning, the other one called The Incident, I don't, The Awakening. I don't remember the name of the other this one. This is Manstey's View. There we go. Her, I was gonna. That's why I called it The Incident because then in, in that one, uh, there, there. Well, there, it revolves around a very specific incident. Anyway, I am here today, joined by illustrious podcast guest Amanda. She's rejoining us on the show again. Welcome, illustrious. I love it. <laughs> to, be, to be fair, I have to give credit. You know, you don't want to podcast plagiarize. Have you ever heard uh, Jesus and Mero, the internet dudes? No. They're they're per- they did a late night show on Vice. Um, it's kind of like an alternative programming because their their take on late night is way more like vulgar and profanity laden. It's not late night like Seth Meyers like giggle giggle. I'll be charming and like kind of make some jokes. Mm-hmm. They're like much more of a. Uh, comedy. It's like stand up, but they're they're a duo. They always broadcast together. Anyway, they have a podcast and they have guests and interviews and whatever. It's like late night stuff. But they always call their guests uh, the illustrious guest, and I'm pretty sure I've just absorbed that. So I ah. anyway, I don't want to come across as like a, I'm totally just stealing their their verbiage or whatever. I definitely don't want that. Um, so yeah, there's your recommendation of the week. We can just end this now. Maybe check out Jesus and Mara. I could see someone who would, didn't like, because th- their comedy is very much, we're both pretty stoned and we're going to say really vulgar things. So I could see uh, it being really off-putting to, I don't know, to certain audiences. But I think for the most part, I like their stuff. I actually don't love the podcast they do, but it is, they have great, you know, great dynamic between them. Uh, I like their clips. Like they have YouTube clips and they've done shows. I like when they re- react to videos online. That's they kind of got that was a big part of their show. It's oh, like here's a clip and we're going to show them and then they they really just riff off of each other. They were friends before the show, I guess, and then they turned that into a late night gig. Well, that's what it's about, right? Like podcasts are just ways to socialize. Yes, essentially, especially for those of us who are trapped indoors, either <laughs> voluntarily or not. Sometimes, sometimes I voluntarily trap indoors. You know, sometimes I, I don't need the government to tell me yeah. what, to do, what to do with myself and, and <laughs> where to put myself, and that's indoors. Um, <laughs> speaking of being stuck indoors, Edith Wharton seemingly spent a lot of time indoors in high society. Uh, that's as be- uh, good of or as best a segue as I can come up with here. It's great. I think it fits. Um, Let me try again. Speaking of stuck indoors, how about that lady in the first story who's too elderly and too depressed to go outside and she's stuck, you know. Um, Today, Amanda and I will be reviewing both of these short stories by Edith Wharton and we'll follow our usual review format. If this is your first time listening, then we hope you enjoyed that beginning tangent. Not the usual around here, but hey, we, we roll with it. We're happy to entertain in any form and fashion that we can we normally start our book reviews off though with one sentence similes so try and get it literary right away amanda why don't you throw yours out there first this week what do you got for youth warden sure um i said reading this is like going to your favorite spot like anywhere that's your favorite place that you've gone numerous times and then one time going there and discovering something completely new about it oh okay would you say spot? I'm thinking, 
My first thought was restaurant. Maybe that's because we can't be in them right now. This is 2020 <laughs> coronavirus recording time, but FYI, yeah. <laughs> just for future, I always, I always put that out there because my hope for this pod is that no one listens to it now, but in 100 years, some weird anthropologist finds it in some data backlog <laughs> server that, you know, they're living on the moon and they like come back and do a mission to earth and they're like, we found this external hard drive. What is this? All? Anyway, that's my dream. So uh, yeah, 2020, <laughs> we're recording this coronavirus. My first thought is restaurant. Did you have any other thoughts on locations for that? Uh, yeah, just I was thinking like a library because um, for me, hmm. what I was thinking specifically of was that I read a lot um like growing mm-hmm. up, I read a lot of classic literature. Jane Austen was one right. of my favorites. And uh, Charlotte Perkins yeah. Gilman was one of my favorites. And it's all because of like style and characterization. And yeah. so I thought that those were like kind of like the classics that I had read before were kind of the the end all be all for me with, in regards to that. And I I have Edith Wharton novels, right? I've got um, yeah. the one that's like super. Definitely Age of Innocence, probably. Yeah, that's the one I've got. I've actually yeah. got two different ones. But yeah, Age of Innocence for sure. And I just like have it, but I never read it. Um, oh, okay. After reading these short stories, I'm like, wow, she actually um, fits in really well with the my other favorite authors. So I'm surprised mm-hmm. at myself for not picking up she writing before she is of a style and of a type of social critique that if you lumped her in with jane austen it wouldn't like make me angry i feel like um or i feel like they'd be pretty fruitful there'd be some rich comparisons there i do get i do hesitate when comparing authors from different i guess like countries generations whatever just because again working with students like we have younger like high school middle school age i feel like they just lump anything that isn't uh, current action heavy fast paced thing into the same like it's yeah. just classic whatever you know so but no I think that's yeah perfectly uh, astute observation they would fit together very well I had a kind of similarly positive simile review I said that reading it was like showing up to a restaurant or maybe a dinner party where you're not quite prepared or maybe you're underdressed. I'm imagining your friend says, we should go to a new restaurant. You don't even Google it. You just agree. And you know, you wear your Friday jeans and t-shirt and then it's like everyone there is in a suit. They don't kick you out though. And I think that's the key thing is it's that it was like that experience, but it was, it's still an enjoyable night. You know, your friends don't make fun of you. You just kind of roll with it and it's like, Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And maybe in the background you have this kind of social dread the whole time. But, mm-hmm. you know, overall, it's you, you got a good experience out of it. Yeah. And um, I make that comparison not just because this these stories deal with um, at least one of them deals with kind of society, uh, capital S in, in a sense, high society. Right. Um, but because literally it was kind of like, I know I should be enjoying this maybe a little more than I am. But in the end, it was it was fulfilling or it was, you know, I didn't regret it or anything. I enjoyed the reading experience, but something about it at times um left me with like really low humming feelings that I wasn't a hundred percent satisfied. Maybe we'll, the review will help us explore why that would be, but that's my comparison. Nice. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's not a socially going to an odd restaurant or or not being dressed up for something is not an experience we'll have to worry about maybe for all of 2020. (laughs) Who knows? Maybe I don't have to, I don't have to fear that feeling, uh, because we may, we might not be going back this year. I guess we'll find out in the coming months. Yeah. Let's throw out some connections then. And I've, we've beaten the coronavirus thing into the ground. I don't know how we could avoid talking about it though. I literally wrote down, try and avoid direct coronavirus comparisons or connections. Uh, Cause the next thing we like to do in the reviews to set you up with some background is to make a current day connection to something that is probably a bit old. 
Do you have a connection that is not directly coronavirus related? Yeah, I mean, I see that yours is is marriage and mine also right. is marriage, but in the sense of like the in um in western society anyway, it's like almost the the shunning of marriage and instead the turning towards the idea of like a partnership. Right. Yeah. Which while a change in language, I've always wondered what is your take on the change in actual what's the actual change there instead of just a a word flip because to me it's the the word flip kind of comes uh hand in hand with the we're kind of like trying to i don't know i don't know who we is in this now or in this example i guess it's me um but it's like people are trying to ungender english a bit right Mm -hmm. now just because of how gender studies have evolved and and things about sexuality have changed and part of that seems like going away from husband wife to just saying partner, which is a gender neutral term. So to me, it's like that that's been just part of that movement. But um, you, do you think this is a has a substance behind it? I think so. And I, I think also like the idea of like a partnership, too, means that you don't have to necessarily involve um, legal right? Like the mm-hmm. law. So part of marriage right. is, is like, you know, you're signing up and, and letting society know that like legally you are this person's partner. So right. um, I think that people are, are kind of like turning away from that a bit more um, in today's society, which is, which fits in really well with the, uh, the reckoning story. So. Yeah, it was the most clear connection. I think, I mean, I made the joke in my comment that right now is a, is a time for marriages to be kind of resolutely tested. So there's your coronavirus connection <laughs> if, you really, if you really want one. Yeah. But I also think just generationally, there's plenty of, that you could contemplate here, especially since the characters in the story about marriage here are, are kind of progressive in a, in a way. I mean, especially yeah. for her time period. And so, you know, it's just like statistically, our generation has waited longer to marry, waited way longer to have kids. It's worth asking and wondering. And I think this book, there are these stories bring up some points around it, but like what it's for, why you would commit to it or not. What did it, why is it meaningful or not meaningful? These are, you know, pretty fundamental questions. And I think these can help. Yeah. And, and from my personal experience, like uh, Josh and I, we were not going to mm-hmm. get married at all. And we were just like happy to do um, a commitment ceremony and, Uh Um, just like be partners, but ultimately what led us to the decision to, uh, actually get married, um, was when I got pregnant and we were looking at, you know, the laws and specifically in North Carolina. And it's like, in order for him to like be an effective father, if something were to happen to me and he had to take care of Viola or if nothing happened to me and he's just the caretaker for Viola and he's like the one taking right. her to the doctor and stuff, it's like an act of Congress for him to like be a father. Right. Okay. People are to get question, exactly. Exactly. Uh, okay. But if we're married, that's just automatically granted yeah. to him. So it wouldn't we be were hard. Like, to, yeah. It wouldn't be hard to trace those roots to probably a Puritan you know, yeah. like America's not that old. We we could probably <laughs> we could probably walk this one back uh, and find out why the where the motivation for that would be. Yeah, but it does seem kind of like a puritanical way to look at it. Yeah, I've always just heard. You know, I'm not I'm unmarried. Um, and so I've always heard though that the legal benefits are pretty strong. I I just to me some of the marriage things the. Um, I, I think weddings are a great fun time. You should do what you want. I think a lot of it is absurd. That's just my outsider's view. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, if I could envision my wedding, I, it would involve few components that 
of kind of traditional stuff you see on TV, I guess, or in movies, that kind of thing. You wouldn't Again, do the, the Korean marriage that I did? <laughs> I thought that was fun. I don't know. I, I would honestly, so like your wedding is a great contrast because like yours was, it took the formal parts like dinner, family, nice meal, you know, so, um, I was going to say religious ceremony. It wasn't very religious. It was more like cultural ceremony, I guess. Yeah. Um, though it could have been religious. I don't know. It was in it a foreign was not, language. No. Some of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Um, no, mine would be more of just the party part, which yours kind of cut out. Granted, we hung out after and it was fun and got to see friends. But I, mine would be mostly the party aspect. Yeah. Like the let's ha- get together and have a rip roaring party, celebrate that way. But anyway, um, outsiders view, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But no, there's, I just think these stories do connect and yeah, the, the kind of aggressively modern interpretation of marriage in the second story was weirdly strongly relevant. I was like, wow, this is basically yeah. the guy is proposing that marriage probably shouldn't even exist anyway, mm-hmm. um, which feels extremely kind of modern in our interpretation. Yeah, for sure. Did you have, did, was your connection similar then? But it was about marriage. Yeah, that was that was one of my oh, okay. connections, but I I didn't know yeah. what your connection was, so I wrote another one just in case. Cool. Yeah, did you want to? Yeah, talk <laughs> yeah, about it for sure. a second. Then what the was other it? one um, for both stories, actually, I was trying to make a connection between the both of them, and so what I was thinking of was the idea of like the lack of agency. So if anybody oh. feels like, and that could be like minorities, it could be, um, yeah. you know, anybody who feels that they're being marginalized and don't have a voice, I think that that. Um, both of these stories could appeal to that. Yeah. And in the first story, um, granted, we keep using terms first and second. Sorry, if you're a listener out there and you're looking for these, the, the marriage story is the reckoning. The other one was the, the view of who again? It was a woman's name. The, the Mrs. Manstey's view. Mrs. Manstey's view. That's the other one. Um, both. I just wanted to say those at least one time because we're probably going to keep referring to them to the first and second. At least I yeah. will. Um but both of them do deal with kind of like social isolation in pretty different ways um, mm-hmm. and the effects of that on people and their their character studies in part of that uh, of those effects, I guess, or of that concept. So, yeah, those definitely jump out as relevant. Let's we've danced around them as we like to, but let's dig into the stories. Um, we try and avoid spoilers, as that term is known in 2020, but we will be doing some quotes now for clarification. This is when we like to get into the author's style the story components, how they came together, what we thought about them. And this is where we like to get specific. Amanda, why don't I throw it to you for the first quote? What stood out to you about the work? It sounded like you were kind of positive on it. Yeah, actually, I really enjoyed yeah. her writing. I was um, I was afraid that it would be disappointing, but I was not disappointed. I, I actually really mm-hmm. enjoyed her stuff. Um, so I do have um, some quotes here. And I was just looking at, like I usually do, I was just um, trying to pick up on um, particular style um, takes and stuff like that, things that she does um, as she writes. And, and I found it all enjoyable. Um, she's obviously a very mm-hmm. purposeful writer. So um, one of the things that really caught me was like how intertwined the setting and the character, mm-hmm. um, the characters are in, in both of her stories, actually. So the, the, yeah. the setting is often um, like a mirror for uh, how the character is feeling and also like their, their characterization in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm. um, she, uh, there's this one quote that's in um, the second story that the reckoning Westall a moment later had overtaken his look and found a place at the girl's side. 
She bent forward, speaking eagerly. He leaned back, listening with the depreciatory smile, which acted as a filter to flattery, enabling him to swallow the strongest doses without apparent grossness of appetite. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was a great way because it's uh, Westall is um, Julia, the main character's husband, and he's running off to talk to Una, um, who's a younger lady and who is uh, fascinated with his lectures about um, (laughs) about how like uh, marriage is essentially immoral in a lot of ways so yeah, and he is married to julia 10 years yeah. in the story that's yep. the first line of the story is him basically summarizing his philosophy on marriage his yep. view thou shalt not be unfaithful to thyself right yeah to thy own self thine own self be true and yeah. so it's yeah i mean it it's a weirdly this was like a nitpicky plot thing and again societally or at the time it this is like, I'm about to say something silly. I don't know why I'm saying it, but I'm going to say it. Um, I it's, it's like he's advocating. It's a such blatant hypocrisy. So it's a, maybe like he doesn't have the courage to just say no one should get married at all. But mm-hmm. it's kind of like he's basically just saying you should be able to leave marriage whenever you want. So yeah. I guess it begs the question, why get married? That's never really directly addressed. I guess that's what I was building up to there is just I'm nitpicking something that the story doesn't even bother to answer and probably doesn't care about. But and that could just be a time frame thing or time period. Like at the time, marriage was such an institution of society and foundational to to the wealthy that, you know, that's how you make your connections or whatever. And so, yeah, that's the, what, the notion like, of. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say that, like, actually, Julia, when she was thinking after, like, he makes his proposition to her, um, Ju- uh, Julia, the main character, she was thinking on, like, why did she marry him? And she's like, by all yeah. rights, she shouldn't have married him. But the reason that they got married, according to her, was that it's it was a pressure of the time. They just gave in to, right. um, to, the, to what society expected of them. But with yeah. the understanding, right, they made a pact that if they ever uh, felt that they didn't love each other, that they would set the other person free. So it was yeah. like, yeah, the yeah. marriage was just for social reasons rather than for their own, like, personal choice. Yeah. Yeah, and the quote you chose underscores that sort of conflict well. And the they have a, the, those two characters have, a, I think, a good push and pull that becomes very awkward, purposefully awkward in the story. Mm -hmm. And I I think the dialogue is meant to serve that purpose too. The two, two of the first quotes I pulled that I I thought of this is like, cause you know, we usually do three or so each. And I thought I wanted to pull, pull mostly the stuff I enjoyed. I did pull one quote that illustrates some things I disliked, but here's one that I enjoyed. And the quote you pulled was such good characterization. And that I think is the best stuff quote unquote in the broadest sense. Um, here's a, here's one from 37 from the second story. Now that it was over, she sickened to find herself alive. That's when she, Julia received some not so good news from her husband about their marriage. Yeah. And I thought it's, it's, um, she had extremely sharp and brief sentences like this, which when interspersed with her normally pretty verbose style, not un, not, I wouldn't say it's like unreadable or purposefully challenging or anything, but you know, you find yourself in some, some lengthier prose in this, in her writing, but so many times she turns on a dime with a sentence like that and yeah. they're just brutal and extremely effective. And yeah. I think 
that quote, I love the sickened verb, which, you know, kind of shows the, the psychology of her character at that moment. Yeah. And the finding yourself alive is just the harshest possible terms to phrase that. Yeah. And yeah, it just had such good rhetorical incision. I, th- I uh, There were plenty of sentences, lots of them like that, that, and again, especially coming out of some of the other paragraphs that maybe are a bit more dense or something, mm-hmm. sometimes you find these turns and they're just really well done. I think, um, yeah, so she does, this is what made me think of um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman in particular, because yeah. Gilman also is able to like write some really short and to the point paragraphs and sentences, but that yeah. that have so much emotion and characterization in them that you don't need more. Um, so I, right. that's why I likened her in, in my original uh, when I was talking about my simile at the beginning to Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And that's what I really enjoy about their writing. And I think too, Definitely. like you were talking about how verbose she can be at times in her, her writing. Um, I think that was on purpose, especially in the second story, because mm-hmm. you'll see like a lot of like really big words that she uses and stuff like that. And I think that was to show the intelligence of Julia and to show right, how Julia right. is like, like, really logical in a lot of ways and really aware and like worldly and all this stuff. But at the same time, like contrasting that with uh, what's happening in her life and how she's feeling now versus when she was like an idealist before she settled into her marriage. And it suits, yeah, not only, and it suits this, um, the times so well, I think whenever you get bold enough to take any art form and go, and get old with it right i mean we're we get inundated with our, whatever modern thing we like modern movies mm-hmm. tv whatever books and as soon as you start venturing back into pretty distinctly different eras of literature i think you just have to be willing to you know put on the miner's cap and like dig in do the work that in, that accompanies that task and obviously you know you and i is like i think pretty strong literary folks we have degrees that kind of back that up um, we're both willing and eager to do the work and I'm, I'm not always that eager, frankly, but I'm definitely willing and intrigued. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for readers who come in very cold and think, you know, the last book I read was to kill a mockingbird in 11th grade. I still think this would be somewhat readable more so than a bunch of stuff that we've included in the penguin classics so far, the little for black sure. classics. Um, I, yeah, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush and say she's a, a dense, unreadable mess, like some of the poetry we've done and some other things. I think it, compared to that stuff, this is, you know, kind of breezy, but I, yeah, compared to someone who, you know, if you're just reading like Tom Clancy thrillers and you pick this up, you might, you're going to pause sometimes and think, holy shit, what was that was paragraph was like, you know, one sentence and it was 10 lines. And what did I just, what just happened? Yeah. So it's got a mix of that. I'll throw my other quote out there um, to the other characterization one I loved. It's another brief one from 44. It's about her old husband, and it said he had thickened, coarsened, settled down into the enclosing flesh, which is such a weird Lovecraftian description in the middle of this, like, (laughs) it's not a comedy of manners, but it's like a drama of manners and marriage. And uh, the thickened, coarsened, I like that. I love that combo because the thickened one is so obvious, but the coarsened one is, you kind of, your brain kind of gets to wander over that as it wants to. That can kind of mean literal age or emotional age. I don't know. That can mean everything, but yeah, finishing with enclosing flesh is, um, I don't know, I guess to some people that might feel like an overwrite, but to me it was so gross and vivid and it kind of, 
underscored her disgust at seeing him, you know, but it, maybe yeah. she's pitying him even a little in the moment. I think it hits all the stuff the previous quote did too. I didn't mean to, well, I guess I, I did it in the end. I meant to, but I pulled two quotes there that I think are effective for the same reasons. Like, it's very biting. It's quick. It comes off of other descriptions really well. And it just feels like a great summation at the end of a, of a description of a character. And that, that kind of like whip crack sharp characterization is like throughout most of both of these, I think. Yeah. I loved, actually, that was another quote that I had underlined uh, as I was reading, because mm-hmm. that's just how I read as I underline things that I find interesting. And yeah. I, I, I thought that was just such a great and, and just a unique way of describing somebody. Yeah, and it was very vivid, and I loved it. Yeah, I think that's a it great really quote. is. Yeah, and I even the more I parse it and reread it, maybe it's the settled down part that makes everything work because it really then undercuts the the in flesh bit. It makes it sound like nice or comfortable, you know, mm-hmm. like you're settling into a ch- comfortable chair or something, yeah. um, which is how I always explain my weight gain. You know, I'm just like, I'm just, you know, <laughs> I'm building, I'm building a recliner out of my body. <laughs> about as gen- it's about as generous as I can always, you know, phrase that uh, experience. You know, I'm just, I'm going to start I'm using cushioning. that. <laughs> self cushioning. Uh, excuse me, I'm self cushioning. I'm letting my flesh and clothes the like increasingly comfortable exterior or whatever. Um, yeah. It, it feels as I'm reading it now again and again, it feels, I don't know, even more intriguing, I, I think, which is yeah. usually kind of a sign of something positive on, on this podcast anyway. How about another quote for you? Yeah. Um, let's see. So one of the other ones that I have here, um, I, I pulled all of my quotes actually from, that same story. And I think okay, all of yours yeah. are also from the same story. Right? I tried not to. Yeah. Maybe we'll talk about why that might be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've got here when we're talking about um, compared to uh, some of the previous authors that we ha- had discussed in the series, um, we were talking about how like sometimes they have like authorial interjections that just seem completely out of place or just like were not really put in very well. They just seemed like, Oh, mm-hmm. well, I'm the author, so I'm just going to throw in this opinion and it doesn't even fit into the story, but whatever. It's my opinion. So um, so I have this from um, the second story and it says, the day was radiant, metallic, one of those searching American days so calculated to reveal the shortcomings of our street cleaning and the excesses of our architecture. I really liked that because not only does it have yeah. the setting, but it also, you see what her opinion is of um the the society or the the setting that she grew up in right so right, new right. york america in the the late 1800s early 1900s and so it's and it fits in because it is a part of the setting but you still get that authorial interjection without it being like overt necessarily yeah yeah no i agree the the settings interplay so well here and this is the this is the middle school and me coming out or whatever middle school teacher i mean coming out but yeah if i if i thought about like could you teach a unit on setting with these stories both a hundred percent i mean it's in the first story the one with the woman's view the setting is the antagonist essentially i mean debatably whatever like there's a character too but um yeah and then in the second one 
Did, what did you think about the setting of her ex-husband? Because that was so I like the the sitting room they talk in. She she reflects on that like five times. There's some kind of yeah. portrait of uh, Greek slaves that's really off-putting to her, which she brings up a couple of times. And yeah, there's a lot of setting components you could analyze for sure. And even in her her current sitting room, she she kind of like describes both of those sitting rooms. Uh, the yeah. the first one, her first husband was like the slave one was uh, the slave picture was really interesting and showed her view of marriage while she was with him. Right. So she was afraid that she was losing herself and her identity and she was turning into him because his personality was so strong. So she's like enslaving herself to him in a way. And then mm-hmm. like yeah. in her other sitting room with um, what's his name? Weatherall, whatever. Is that her is. ex-husband? Her, yeah. Westall with Westall. her. Yeah, yeah. With her current husband. Um, that sit- setting room too is she looks around and she says that everything just like seems comfortable to her essentially. Like she has settled into that life. Um. So yeah. that, which also ties in with that previous quote of the settled down into the enclosing flesh, like the idea of like settling down and, and getting older and like losing parts of like, you know, your idealisms and stuff like that. Yeah, that's fair. As, as you've been giving that over uh, and turning that analytically over, I've been parsing the first story. I'm trying to find a quote from it that I could now throw in because now I feel bad. I will say this, <laughs> which, which is really weird. And I, as I was pulling quotes, I'm usually tr- extremely active thinking about balancing them out. And I mm-hmm. don't know how this one escaped me because all this is going to make this even weirder. But I'll say this. I actually like the first story more, the mm-hmm. woman's view. Mm-hmm. Granted, it was also like half the length, which I feel like always kind of disadvantages stories. At least they can. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was just a perfectly contained short story in a lot of ways. Yeah, It has such an intimate occasion and it's such a like the if i were to say the plot of this it would be it would sound like a nothing story which i sometimes think is the richest text for short stories and frankly the second short story basically has no plot it has one crucial event but you know the building up if you were to mountain diagram this again middle school brain here it wouldn't have much going on it's mostly conversations and then again there is a conflict a pretty clear one um, and some resolution to it. It's mostly yeah. a character piece, though. It's like characters interacting, and you get some some things. But I just thought the first one had had like a bunch of things humming and working, yeah. almost maybe to its fault at some point. Maybe I read it so smoothly that my brain didn't like hang up on parts or pause or register. Maybe like the second one. Mm-hmm. I found another quote from the first one though that I liked. I'm just going to share that because um, when I, when I was flipping, I found one on page seven. I enjoyed. It's when her neighbor's gossiping with her. And she just says, I should have thought that would have cured our neighbor of building or wanting to build, but I guess it's a disease like drink. Anyhow, the work is to begin Monday. (laughs) And it's just a small, and you go into the conversation already knowing that the the woman, the protagonist doesn't like this neighbor because she's gossipy. And that's such a nice little brief gossip in the turn, you know, she like throws in that little comment and then it's just like, well, anyway, you know, I'm going to get back to it. And so it, yeah, it felt very lived in as a quote, especially as a bit of gossip like harsh little critique and then just moving on that's i feel like people who are gossip mongers love that kind of that kind of back and forth tete-a-tete of just like i'm just gonna throw this snark out there and you know just let it sit there and so yeah it's just sharp characterization good dialogue all around Mm -hmm. did you have a a final quote that you want to throw out there 
Yeah, I mean, I have one uh, from the second story. I was looking through um, the first story as well, just to mm-hmm. try to, <laughs> to find something. I know. I know. Uh, but I think I, I will actually point out something that I found in the, the first one. Yeah. Um, so she's thinking about, like, should she move um, because of the, the building, the, the next door neighbor building, the extension. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says... Um, she might move, of course, so might she be flayed alive, but she was not likely to survive either operation. The room, right. though far less important to her happiness than the view, was as much a part of her existence. She had lived in it 17 years. So this ties in with the idea that like setting is just so important to both the characters and to like the overall story <clears throat> and how um, the setting is not only a source of her happiness, Mrs. Manston, Manstee's happiness but also the setting is just a part of who she is as a person and she cannot bear Mm -hmm. to have any changes brought to it and also she can't bear to leave it even if it is changed so but I think that the idea of like being flayed alive I thought that was a pretty interesting it's another one, well, it's an, and it's another one of her um, exam. It's, an, it's another example of her being willing to kind of push the rhetoric in a way, in a, in a way that may seem like aggressive comparatively. Again, mm-hmm. especially when you come off some of her other senses, which can feel kind of conservative in that old writing conservative way, not in the like moral political way, but right. in the in the like very hedging, very long modifiers of you know elucidating these long characterization things and. Sometimes she just turns it on a dime like that. And I, I found it extremely satisfying to read. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I really enjoyed it. I'll say my final quote was going to be a really long one that I thought was one repetitive and two unclear. So mm-hmm. again, I just want to throw out the, I'm not going to read it or dig into it because we've, I think we've quoted tons and really good stuff, but I would just point out that again, I think there is a stylistic hurdle, not a very tall one though, in, in total, hopefully the quotes we read gave you listeners some confidence in reading this or approaching it but i I felt like there were moments where it it got on with itself a little bit too much but Mm -hmm. i'll just mention that and then we can jump to the literary corner did you pull anything because i know we didn't share a doc this week did you pull anything for our literary corner this is our educational segment where we try and pull some kind of literary element we can deep dive on yeah, um, I thought that, um, as I had mentioned earlier, that that setting was mm-hmm. super important. So I was looking sure. up um, stuff about like whether there was some kind of like different thing about setting that I didn't know about, and of course. I was reading up on something that's called psychological setting. Okay, yeah, which is a setting that is um, tied very closely to the character. In fact, it's like supposed to mm-hmm. reveal the psychology of the character through the setting. Um, So I thought that was pretty fitting for. Especially for the first story and the, the, her view, the woman's view, Mrs. Mansley's view. Yeah. It's, that is the driving force of the entire story. Again, it's like the occasion of the tale. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I dug up archetype, so I went way back into the human subconscious mind and (laughs) revisited archetype, which, I should probably track these literary corners because I do intend for most of them to be a new thing every week. Mm-hmm. Um, I swear I've talked about archetype before, but that's okay. I pulled it. I just thought that her stories had pretty solid examples and intriguing versions of this. Um, let me pull the Penguin Literary Dictionary quote quick on archetype, which by the way was like two pages. I'm just condensing it hugely. <laughs> In general terms, the abstract idea of a class of things which represents the most typical and essential characteristic shared by the class. Thus, it's like a paradigm or an exemplar. 
An archetype is atavistic and universal, the product of the, quote, collective unconscious and inherited from our ancestors. Basically, it's like the oldest ideas humans seem to have and share. Mm -hmm. Cross-cultural. Usually, it should be cross-cultural. Plato was the first philosopher to elaborate on the concept of archetypal or ideal forms, which in his mind were beauty, truth, and goodness, and divine archetypes as well. The classic ones that I was taught, you know, or, or like used in an analysis in um, college or high school, even like AP stuff is color, light and dark. Those are like really big ones. Yeah. The characters can become archetypes, plots, themes, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, I thought her use of archetypes with light and dark and color were both pretty effective. I mean, one story literally ends with a sentence like she walked into the darkness or something, which right. th that stuff is just never incidental in literature. Even if you're like a literary hater and you're like, oh, no, none of this means anything. I don't know. That just seems like such a blatant use of archetype that you can't look at that and say that means nothing. You know, yeah. even even again, if you're or even if you're a pretty passive reader and you're not wanting to analyze much, I still feel like that moment would strike you. And there's other things that occur in the dark. There's fire. Fire is one of the classic human archetypes. Fire and water have you know pretty solid meanings in literature. And yep. so, yeah, I'm not sure if any of those jumped out or if you had thoughts on any of them, but I noticed them pretty vividly when I was reading and she seems to play with them. She does. And she also plays with, um, <coughs> excuse me, another archetype that she kind of plays with is mm -hmm. the archetype of like the innocent, um, the innocent female, right? Which is yeah. what Una was supposed to be. Um, but mm -hmm. because she's a modern girl, right? Um, that means that uh, she's trying to shed that innocence, but um, Julia is trying to stick her back into that role. So she's playing with that particular archetype and, and comparing Una to like, an angel and she's divine and all these other things. And then like, we find out that she like smokes and she drinks and right. <laughs> like all right. this other stuff. But I thought that that was pretty, pretty funny. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I picked up on some of those archetypes and I think that's just another sign of her mastery of, of style and of language. I feel like a lot of that subtlety I missed was that in the first part of the story, like after yes. the dinner scene or dinner. Okay. I feel like my brain must've been really glazing over some stuff. Cause as you're describing a couple of these things, I don't remember some of them. I remember her general, cause she's like 26 and is a younger, she's like weirdly unwed. I know there's a commentary sentence on that, that yeah. she's it's like unusual that she hasn't married. Um. Anyway, no, that's good. That's great that you picked up on that and weirdly fits in. That's perfect for the archetype stuff. Yeah. Um. And yeah, some authors like to use archetypes and then twist them around and use them in ironic ways, which makes reading all the more complicated and interesting. <laughs> yeah. Let's end with our reviews. We will start, as is our habit now, with the Russell French, it's my grandfather, in memoriam, What's Good About It segment. This is when we have to say one enthusiastic or positive thing about the text, which should be quick today. I'll start with mine. Yeah. We've already said a bunch of things that I think hold up. It's very witty. You know, it's comical in the right spots. I don't think either tale is meant to be comedic at all, especially the way both of them end. But I think there's a lot of wit witticisms and critiques and just kind of sharp social commentary. It definitely felt... Um, I wrote down the word juicy in terms of like gossip. I don't know if you've heard that term used that way, but it's like, oh, that's juicy gossip. It kind of felt that way yeah. in the, yeah, in a, in a social observational way. Like it's, yeah. it was kind of being harshly critical at times, not all the time, but that's how it felt. Yeah. I think that's a great review. I also I like enjoyed one. her wit. One of the things that, I mean, I, I really yeah. enjoyed reading it anyway, um, but that's definitely something that I noticed. And another thing was um, just, 
her ability to characterize both the main characters, but also in the second story in particular, characterizing some of the lesser characters too. Like I think okay. that she does yeah. a great job with giving us some insight into, even if it's very brief, into uh, mm-hmm. more than just like the superficial as far as the characters. Definitely. Yeah. And her and her husband's interplay in the second story, I thought was pretty great. Yeah. Let's end with our official ratings then. Oh, score of a one means do not read this, avoid it. Score of a two means perhaps seek it out. It's qualified recommendation. And a score of a three means you must read this. You should add it to your collection and go find some Edith Wharton. Amanda, I'm going to let you start because I think I know what you're going to say. Yeah, I, <laughs> I've been pretty enthusiastic about the read. Yeah. And so, yeah, I would uh, give it a three. Um, I think that the style is just really honed in and it's yeah. fitting and she's very purposeful in everything that she writes. Um, I think that the storylines are are interesting and I think that yeah. they're not overplayed in other you know, like we don't see this type of writing a lot and this type of storytelling a lot. Um, and yeah. so I found it interesting to read. It, it was really Despite some of like in the second story, you were saying uh, sometimes the language and, and the longer sentences, but I think that was a stylistic choice. And yeah, I was yeah. still able to just like fly through the reading very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And I I just found it really enjoyable. And I think that it's relatable. And I think that, yeah, it's it's a great read. It was really well balanced in that way, too. I think yeah. it keeps it has a flow that, again, maybe a modern reader expects a perhaps more action oriented kind of story flow but right. i still think these move really well and the characterization will hold your attention For sure. i'm gonna stick with two then just so just to acknowledge the criticisms i guess because i even wrote down as i sometimes do i was hedging it was like eh, maybe i'll bump it to a three because it is in that range to me mm-hmm. but i'm gonna i'll stick with two then i i still f- think and found the second story the marriage one to be just again situationless in, in the plot sense, which again, to me is not even why I come to stories necessarily, but I just found that it dragged in certain paragraphs. I'm not talking for pages. like, And again, I think it's to its credit that I don't think there was ever a time when I flagged and lost attention for multiple pages. It was usually just like a couple of paragraphs in a row, maybe that I just, my attention drifts or that I didn't think the characters were developed in a way I needed. And it felt, I guess, laborious. And again, in small bursts, I think overall it was pretty excellent and really well written. I think too... Uh, we didn't mention this or get into this in the quotes, but I really love the dialogue. She does a thing that I always love stylistically, which is chop off dialogue, which always Mm -hmm. feels more naturalistic to me. And she did that really well. Yeah. I think there's so much to recommend about it. I think the only hang up would be in a review would be, well, the, the characters in time period, right. You have to be into kind of high society turn of the century era, which, you know, I think is interesting for a lot of reasons, but um, yeah. And then the style is, Maybe that little bit too rigid for some people, but I think if you've been even a little bit curious while listening to this, you should 100% read um, at least something that Edith Wharton has written. Um, yeah, I, I didn't mention this. I thought this would come up naturally in the show, but it didn't. I read two of her novels and some of her short stories in college, actually. Oh, really? Amer- yeah, during an American realism class. So we read The Reef and then The Age of Innocence, which is, I think, her that's kind of considered like her masterwork. Yeah. And I remember thinking, she wasn't an author I came out of college remembering with tons of fondness. I remember the reef being kind of dense and not unapproachable, but at the time I just remember thinking 
it was um and i've used this terminology in previous episodes but i think i remember thinking while reading it this will make for very fruitful paper writing but i don't know if i like this and that kind of and when Mm. you're studying something i feel like you gain admiration for works that are like that where you think the density of this makes me appreciate it and the skill quality of it makes me appreciate it i don't know if i love it but i at least came away with it with that kind of respect i don't even know if it was begrudging respect just regular respect it was kind of like okay this was intriguing but i you know it's not like i'm loving it i just was intrigued and respected it so and i had a similar response to this that the characters i think popped a lot more in these stories i um i just looked up like what books edith wharton has written and i realized Mm -hmm. that she wrote ethan from which i did read Uh and i really enjoyed so okay yeah man bad amanda not knowing that (laughs) that's okay i've i've heard the title of that never read it yeah but i read and and if you're into characterization that's definitely a book that you should read okay yeah definitely i at this point maybe this will be the final send-off for this review and maybe the most fitting i would i would seek out a novel of hers now it would just be i would slot it into that time of that like weekly time of in my life where I think I want to be challenged by reading, not right. I want to cruise and enjoy something just for the cruising nature of it, the, the smooth flow. This would be the read for me that I, frankly, a lot of these classics currently occupy, which is like, I want to think deeply and be challenged and reread parts, you know? And I think I would slot her writing in the, to there really comfortably. It was yeah. really enjoyable, really a pretty solid read. And so, yeah, I'm glad if you, you know what, if you would have went to, I probably would have went three. It was kind of that thing where I, I wanted at least one of us to acknowledge that it had, I don't know, hiccups, but yeah, I'm very happy with what we got on this one. Great. Nice great episode for really an enjoyable read and hopefully you go check out some edith wharton in any form or fashion if you're into novels she wrote like 15 or 20 or something so a lot yeah (laughs) you got all kinds of things to pick from um thanks as always amanda for joining it's a pleasure as always we'll be back soon with something really important what was it some author henry james maybe henry james that's right i was gonna say we have another kind of like literary big name coming up soon that was what it was So we'll be back shortly with Henry James. And until then, we will see you between the classics. 